Hello, my name is Afshin Manashi, and I'm the director of the Farzaneh Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies here at the University of Oklahoma. And on behalf of everyone here at the center and at the university, I'd like to welcome you to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Uh, this is our second episode of the podcast, and since we're still getting started, uh, I thought it might be a good idea to say something about how we envision uh, the goals of the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Our primary goal is to publicize the research that is being produced in the field of Iranian studies with an emphasis on work that is sponsored, engaged with, or otherwise created in, in collaboration with Iranian studies faculty here at OU. Uh, we have an active uh, Iranian studies faculty here, all of whom are engaged in research, and part of the goal of the podcast is really to put OU on the map uh, in the field of Iranian studies. Uh, and related to that, we also hope to use the podcast to record conversations with visiting scholars who come to OU to give talks in the field of Iranian studies, and we also have a, a rather active visiting scholar program uh, that is sponsored by OU's Farzanis Center. And we'd like to give both local listeners and everyone on the web uh, who might not be able to attend our on-campus talks a chance to hear from some of our visiting speakers. Uh, so that's also one of our goals. Uh, so for this, our second episode of the, of the podcast, we are very honored to have with us today Professor Lior Sternfeld of Penn, State's, uh, Penn State University's History Department in the History and Jewish Studies program at Penn State. Lior, welcome to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Thank you, Afshin. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, well, we're glad that you, that you made it. We're very happy uh, to have you here in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, out here on, on the southern plains of the North American continent. <laughs> Uh, where Iranian studies is growing and thriving. Thank you for visiting us. We're actually going to talk to uh, Lior about his recently published first monograph, uh, Between Iran and Zion, uh, Jewish Histories of 20th Century Iran, published by Stanford this year, 2019. Uh, some of you probably heard of it. It's a book that's already received a great deal of well-deserved attention in the field of Iranian studies and beyond. Uh, but before we discuss the book, uh, Lior, can you maybe just begin by saying something about your academic background and your, your training? You and I have actually known each other for a while, but maybe some of our listeners can, uh, can get to know a little bit about your academic background. Sure. So um, I started my graduate work at UT Austin down the road from here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I down the I-35. <laughs> um, and... Um, I worked on um, Iranian nationalism, uh, the modern Middle East. Um, I came to UT Austin after getting my undergrad and master's degree in Ben-Gurion University in right, Israel. Right, right. Um, and only about halfway through my uh, graduate training, I changed my topic to focus on Iranian Jews mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I remember that when we, we had some uh, contact back in your, I guess, early graduate career. OU and UT, we have a sort of an informal back and forth collaboration. So I visited you down there when you were still developing the project. Right. Um, but um, and you work with Kamran. Kamran Agai was your your PhD advisor. Correct. Yeah. I kind of think of UT as kind of the way maybe 
UCLA's Iranian Studies program was in the 80s and 90s. There was a whole big group of us that came out of the Nikki Keddy School of Iranian Studies at UCLA. Uh, and I think uh, UT is kind of continuing that tradition a little bit. Yeah, there's a very robust Iranian studies program in U- at UT um, in terms of language training and history and literature and um, every aspect of Iranian culture that uh, can be and should be part of the of the yeah. academic training is is there. So definitely, especially within the discipline of history. Yeah, you know? and I think that's kind of one of the things that really jumps out at your book that makes it part of this tradition that I'm really familiar with is that um, you are really grounded in the discipline of history, and you're you're contributing to a, a historical understanding of modern Iran in the in the within the discipline of history. I, I certainly should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as well as Jewish studies, too, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, let, let's actually discuss the content and the thesis of the, of the book. If you were to encapsulate uh, the book's principal argument, what would you, how would you kind of encapsulate that? So it, it follows up on what you just said. Uh, I think that the biggest... Uh, in, if I have to encapsulate it in one sentence, it would be Iranian Jews were part of the Iranian society, right. which is something that doesn't necessarily uh, come across when you come from the, from the field of Iranian history or from Jewish studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, both uh, overlook or um, ignore the existence of minorities uh, in, in the Iranian sphere. And also, uh, in the terms of uh, when you come from uh, the Jewish studies angle, um, there is this tendency to look at the Jewish community everywhere, but especially in the Middle East and in Iran, as uh, as a group that lives in a bubble mm-hmm. and is very isolated from um, f- from the surrounding environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, what my what I hope that is the biggest contribution of my book is that this understanding that. Iranian Jews were Iranian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were part of the Iranian society. They interacted with the Iranian society, with the non-Jewish Iranian society. They interacted with other, with other minorities. Uh, they lived full, well-rounded life in yeah, Iran. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and your the book really captures that very well. I remember when I was first uh, developing a syllabus for my modern Iran class, uh, you know, and I was, you know, committed to including something about the history of Iran's Jewish community, community in on the syllabus and part of the class. I went to go look for some material, and I was actually frustrated that I couldn't find very much. And the, the one thing that I found was the Habib Levy book, which you actually discuss in the introduction. Right. And it was really kind of my own kind of process of, you know thinking about how to include Iranian Jewish history in my syllabus, and I came across the same issue that you came up with, this, <laughs> is the, this, the Habib Levy book. So how would you sort of describe so that book in, <laughs> let, in let me Let me go back to your first question about my academic trajectory. Um, when I came to UT, I knew that if there's one thing that I'm not going to study, it's history of Iranian Jews. Mm-hmm. Because, <laughs> because right. it was so boring. Mm-hmm. Um, it was made of just pogroms and harassment and uh, this long waiting for Zionist redemption. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if it's if there's one book, and this is the Habib Levy's book, then probably this is everything that there is to know about Iranian Jews. Otherwise, <laughs> we would have um, other 
materials to work with, right? And I knew that I'm not going to, to work on Iranian Jews. I'm going to work on the national movement. I'm going to work on Mossadegh. Mm-hmm. That's where you were starting. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. And, uh, and then for my very last seminar in grad school, I decided to write, I took a class with Kamran Aray. Mm-hmm. And um, this class was on uh, revolutionary ideologies. Oh, yeah. And I decided to write the paper just to get it out of the system to write about <laughs> Jews in the revolution. Of course. I said, this is going to, uh, you know, again, just to get it out of my system. So I can go back to Mossadegh <laughs> and say that I, okay, I covered one thing on Iranian Jews. And, uh, and I said, I mean, the rationale was that when you read history of Jews in the Middle East, especially, and this is a field that has done tremendous progress in the past two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that since Joel Benin wrote his book on the uh, on the Egyptian Jews, mm-hmm. uh, it opened um, the options for studying Jews in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Daniel Sadiq book and, and Daniel Sadiq eventually I assigned a Daniel yeah, Sadiq yeah which is uh, excellent research on uh, on 19th century 19th Iran. century but I said I mean when you read the Jews the, the history of Jews in the Middle East Jews were always there they were part of the national movements they were part of the social movements they were of the bourgeoisie and the communists and they were the poor and the rich. They were diverse as the societies they lived in. And when you read on Iranian Jews, you don't get a sense of diversity. You don't get a sense of a community that is made of many individuals or many classes. Or yeah. And I decided to, uh, to examine for this seminar paper one aspect of the Jewish community in Tehran during the revolution. Mm-hmm. And after uh, this ended up being um, the seminar on which I worked for the longest time. <laughs> uh, but it also became my first article on the, uh, on the Sapir Hospital during the revolution. Um, and mm-hmm. I, this became my first serious engagement with the book of Habib Levy as uh, to analyze the book itself and the author and the circumstances that led him to write this book and uh, and basically to see why the, st- the state of the field of Iranian Jewish history. So uh, it's still behind. It's still in 1961 when yeah. Habib Levy wrote this book. Right. Um, so uh, this was... This made me think that it's about time to get a new assessment of Iranian Jewish history, especially in the 20th century. Habib Levi's book goes from uh, the Babylonian exile 2,700 years ago to, uh, to 1961. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Habib Levi was not a historian by training. So you can see the methodological and theoretical flaws uh, in the mm-hmm. text. And I thought that it certainly had a role in... Uh, shaping Iranian Jewish history and identity, and he himself was a very important figure in the community, but it's about time to get a new uh, historical assessment of, of Iranian Jews. It, you know, it, it reminds me of, um, you know, the, the larger project of critiquing the historiography of modern Iranian nationalism, and, you know, those of us broadly who have been kind of engaged in rethinking the, how that 
that dominant narrative of Iranian nationalism, you know, where it where it comes from and how to unpack it and rewrite it. Um, that seems to be, in a very real sense, part of what your project is is also trying to do. I mean, in Iranian nationalism, you know, there's always the story of, you know, the pre-Islamic, you know, splendor of ancient Iran and then, you know, the Arab Muslim conquest and decline and then the Renaissance and the modern period. And that became the, the dominant 20th century narrative of Iran. Um, and that was the first stage of, you know, rethinking a, a historiography is to sort of identify the dominant narrative and then deconstruct it and then begin to rewrite a new one. And that seems to be like really what, what you're doing for, from the point of view of the Iranian Jewish narrative. Yeah, because the, again, even in the historiographical trends, they were part of the of the society. They also thought of themselves as, uh, in in nationalist terms, right. uh, they were the the. It's not rarity to hear Iranian Jews describe themselves as the original Iranians. Right. They were That's there great. before Islam came. Uh, they are very proud of their Persian heritage. They, uh, I think that, of the Jewish communities of the Middle East, it's probably the one minority, one community that really preserve the culture of Iran. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They still, second and third generation after immigrating out of Iran, they still speak Persian. They celebrate Nuruz. They, uh, something very deep inside is committed to the national project of Iran. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is how they also tell their story. You know, but another theme, though, that comes up in, in your in the book is this theme of fluidity of identity. Right. And, you know, certainly integration and participation in, you know, the, the national project and Iranian identity was a big part of the Jewish experience that you tell that story. But then you also have this theme of sort of the multiple identities, the fluidity. Uh, you know, you could be... You know, you could be Iranian, you could be Muslim, you could be Jewish, you could be Israeli, you could be religious, you could be secular, you could be a communist, you could be a, a nationalist. All at the same time. All at the same time. And, yeah. And all of these things could coexist. It's almost counterintuitive a little bit, but, you know, in the story that you're telling and in a very real way, you know, the way Iranian nationalism as it's lived <laughs> is a combination of all of these things. Right, and, uh, and it becomes counterintuitive when you... Look at it from Western point of view, mm -hmm. uh, because traditionally, I mean, and we also have to dismantle a bit the concepts of what communism means mm -hmm. in in the Middle East, what fascism means in the Middle East, what nationalism yeah. uh, in the Iranian context, in in Middle Eastern context, and as you said, it it allows that the Iranian existence allows these multiple identities to exist or to coexist. Mm -hmm. And it depends on... So, <clears throat> in the 20th century, mm -hmm. when we talk about, for example, the Musadek period, mm -hmm. if you were pro-Musadek, pro-all-nationalization, uh, you could be on the spectrum of Jebehem Eli to Tude, mm -hmm. but you still agree that the Shah is the leader of the country and that the monarchy is... Uh, essential part of Iranian nationalism, it doesn't put you on, it, it doesn't make you a monarchist. Right. But, right. but you're still, it's part of your identity. And as a Jewish person in Iran, you could still think that uh, Zionism was a good development. Right. right. And you would consider yourself Zionist because right. of religious uh, obligations of praying to Jerusalem mm -hmm. and um, 
so I mean, and and it doesn't contradict uh, your loyalty and devotion to the Iranian nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends a lot about it depends a lot on the context of when you have to decide on your identities. Mm-hmm. It depends a lot on the context of um, what is the current struggle mm-hmm. that you're part of. Um, right, yeah. And yeah. It, it changes from moment to moment depending right. on the circumstances yeah. and the and context. And one of my interviewees that uh, I, I quote in the, in the book, uh, he said that he came to Israel in the 1950s, in the mid-50s, and he thought of himself as a communist, Zionist, uh, <laughs> yeah. Iranian nationalist. Right. <laughs> and in Israel, they told him, you can't be all three. <laughs> you have to choose, and you may want to choose the Zionist <laughs> to be your <laughs> prominent identity. And he uh, he didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. In Iran, he never had to choose. Mm-hmm. Why does he have to choose here? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, again, it becomes counterintuitive when you think about it from our day and, and time. So That's right. I think, you know, that fluidity is such a big part of what nationalism is. Even though nationalism itself always tells the story of itself as something fixed and immutable. Right. And immemorial. That's right. But in practice, it's actually much more evolving and fluid and right. um, situational, if you will. Um you know, bringing up the Communist Party, you say uh, the, the book has a lot to say about the Iranian Communist Party, the Tudeh Party, and the participation of the Iranian Jewish community in the uh, in the Tudeh Party. Can you yeah. give us a little context of that? That seems to be a, an important part of your contribution, not only to uh, Iranian Jewish history, but to Iranian history, is to kind of come back to the history of the Tudeh Party, which is still an underdeveloped area in historiography. I, I agree, and uh, I, I think and I hope that it We'll get a conversation started on not just the, the, the role and the place of the Tudeh party in, in the Iranian political system, but also to talk about the meaning of communism mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Because communism in the Middle East and in Iran was not about class warfare. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about uh, workers of the world unite. Mm-hmm. It was about social justice. It, it was about countering racism and anti-Semitism. And it was about... Uh, you know, just getting, uh, you know, today we would <laughs> look at it as social democrats. They wanted living wage. They wanted the right to unionize. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Iranian context, the, and by the way, in Iran and everywhere in the Middle East, the communist parties were the, the parties of minorities. Mm-hmm. This is where minorities could feel at home mm-hmm. because it lacked this side of uh, homogeneous nationali- nationalism. Um, and in Iran, the emergence of the Tudeh Party was uh, in the background of World War II mm-hmm. and right. the occupation of the Allies. The 1940s. Uh, 1941, right. And this was time when uh, many um, big ideologies uh, flourished in the Iranian context. Um, and some of them were Nazi propaganda-inspired ideologies and anti-Semitism was a real thing in Iran. Um, And the Tudor Party was the only political party in Iran that went against tendencies of anti-Semitism, of radical nationalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was also the only party that allowed Jews to officially, or not just Jews, uh, but minorities, to be officially part of the party of the membership mm-hmm. and this was a great opportunity so Jews in 
joined the two day not just because not because of ideological commitment to communism but because they this was the place that protected them that defended their place in the Iranian society it, it, I think the way you put it in the book is it, it made them more Iranian right yeah this was the to the party from the very early 40s to the uh, at least until the mid 50s was the most popular mm-hmm. party in Iran so we have to look at it as the party of the majority right mm-hmm. but also if minorities want to assimilate and want to become more Iranian mm-hmm. th- they would followed and the door is open for them they would join the party that most Iranians like mm-hmm. right but were they participating as secularized Jews or as no religious and, Jews and or? also um, uh, this is another right. misconcept <laughs> um, the to the party was uh, I, the to the party was not a secular party per se Um, in the 1940s, the constitution of the party w- started with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. <laughs> you can't get... <laughs> That's right. uh, you can't look at it with uh, um, secular eyes, right? Um, but... So it wasn't about secularism, and it didn't enforce this uh, communist atheism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it was... Many of the many of the participants of the in the to the party were um, traditional they came from clerical families uh, the leadership of the party was always on the on the spectrum of uh, religious Marxism mm-hmm, and exactly. yeah so you always see this you know that that decade of the 1940s is I think so critical in Iran's history and, and you see what you're describing for the Iranian Jews is it's similar to Shiite clerical families right where you have you know young Iranians who come from these you know pious clerical families and in the 1940s at some point the the, the younger you siblings in the family become two dead members right yeah <laughs> so there's this transition from sort of the religious to the to the two day and it's almost seamless and they're still from the same culture and and, and they identity. find many yeah. ideas in Marxism that they can pack in Islamic right. package that's right yeah. and uh, and this is something that we see all the way through the 1970s and the revolution and um, yeah it, it's something that you When you take out of the equation the uh, the communist atheism mm-hmm. it right. allows you to to see the the variety of ideas and uh, and approaches to religiosity mm-hmm. that existed in the two there and I, I think a, a social cultural history of Iran in the 1940s is is still a, a topic that is really waiting for someone to really uh, manage and take hold absolutely of. and I think yeah. hopefully some graduate students will take up <laughs> that project um, maybe I can ask you about uh, the other one of the other really fascinating parts of the book is your discussion of the uh, oppositional Iranian intellectuals of the 1960s and their uh, relationship with Israel um, and this is also a really a forgotten story that's that also you 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 bring back and help us to understand uh, in some ways part of what you're arguing in one of the chapters is that the Iranian revolutionary movement uh, of 19 ultimately what becomes the 1979 movement was in some ways very much inspired by the Zionist project 
which also seems counterintuitive. Uh, I mean, am I overstating it, or can you explain how how Israel inspired the the revolution of 1979 so, in a positive <laughs> sense? I suppose I, I would say that we definitely see uh, the early um, thinkers of the revolution uh, interact in many ways with. Israel and Zionism and the Zionist thought and it's uh, famously Jalal Ahmad and uh, Bani Sadr who became the first president of Iran and um, and Khalil Maliki I mean these people interacted with uh, with Zionism and Zionist thought and leftist Zionist thought for a long time pre-67 mostly pre-67 yeah and they thought and especially it goes to Jalal Ahmad, he helped to articulate Zionism as a force of, uh, as part of the third worldism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zionism was an anti-colonial movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It helped to uh, drive the Brits out of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was a major contribution to Iran, to Iranian thought in, in uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And he himself went to Israel in 1963, and he wrote a travelogue. Um, and in, in this travelogue, he, he hailed the way that uh, Israel uh, combined uh, this religious tradition with modern nationalism. And Israel is the example of being bridged between West and East and um, and, and I, I mean, he's not not critical of Israel in many ways, but he also sees Israel and the socialist movement in Israel as, as a model, as a paragon of uh, Middle Eastern socialism. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, and he talks about the kibbutz, and he visited with his wife, Simin Daneshvar, in uh, Kibbutz Ayel Tashachar in Israel, and they wrote in the kibbutz guest book that Israel is, uh, uh, that the kibbutz is the solution to many countries, including our own. <laughs> right, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, we now have a translation of, of, the, of Jalal al-Ahmad's book, right. the Israeli Republic, Yeah. Uh, translated by our colleague Samuel uh, Thrope. Yeah, yeah, and I've assigned it to some of my students, and it's only recently available. And, right. Uh, we usually think of uh, it's know, a great translation, and we usually yeah we usually think of West toxication Garbzadegi, but this is the other Jalal uh, And and I think that because of Garbzadegi, uh, when he and Garbzadegi positioned Jalal Ahmad as as the leading thinker of third worldism of uh, postcolonial think the thought. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, when he then sa- goes to say that Israel is, is part of this movement, it gets, uh, and we know that uh, Khamenei tells us that when he was a, a student in the seminary in Qom, mm-hmm. uh, it, it confused them to see Jalal Ahmad speaking of Israel in those terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I think that's another really important part of uh the story that you tell in in your book that uh, should also be kind of part of the discussion. Well, maybe we can talk about the Iranian Jewish participation in the 1979 revolution. And, you know, this is another topic where we have a kind of traditional view uh, that the the Iran's Jewish community had benefited from the reforms of the Pahlavi monarchy, were loyal to the Shah. So when the Pahlavi project collapsed, uh, the Iranian Jewish community were among those who lost out 
in the post-revolutionary realignment. Um, uh, but you argue something else. Um, this is why I titled this chapter The Unintended Consequences, mm-hmm. uh, because they did benefit from the Shah's policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shah tried to uh, integrate them into the society, and they did, to the effect that when the Iranian people took to the streets to protest against the dictatorship of the Shah, they felt part of the Iranian society to the extent that they went out and protested against, mm-hmm. and protested against uh, the dictatorship of the Shah. So, uh, ultimately, it's it's the best manifestation of the success of the Shah's project. Right. Um, right. right. And, uh, yeah, we tend to think of, of, and this is part of the question of historiography, of the Iranian Jews as non-political, mm-hmm. as um, that they did not, they prefer to stay out of politics because it would have been detrimental for them to be part of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see that in 1979, Jews were on both parts of the revolution. They were part of the revolutionary groups. They collaborated with uh, the leaders of the revolution in Iran. And one of the stories that I like so much is the Jewish hospital, mm-hmm. uh, the Sapir hospital, that uh, during the revolution operated uh, ambulance groups with uh, Ayatollah Talakani mm-hmm. uh, that went to locations of demonstrations and picked up wounded uh, protesters uh, to take them for treatment uh, in the Sapir hospital so they won't have to go to the state hospitals where the Savak would wait for them. Um, so, and by the way, many of the uh, leaders of the hospital were not sympathetic to the revolution and they considered themselves uh, pro Shah. Mm-hmm. But for them, this was a humanitarian mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something that they uh, that they should do as part of the Iranian, as being part of the Iranian society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is to rescue and to make sure that uh, their patients are being treated um, as they should, and not uh, not to put the loyalty to the Shah above the loyalty to the Iranian society. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the other part of that, of course, is, you know, during the early days of the revolution, it was unclear what direction the revolution was going to take. And part of the story that you tell is the story of the, the Association of Jewish-Iranian Intellectuals, which was something completely new to me. Right. Uh, and this was an organized uh, group of Iranian Jews who were actually advocating for, I mean, what were they advocating? It wasn't... Um, it, it was, you know, part of the socialist ideal of the early days of the revolution. Right. So these were uh, the the leaders of this group uh, were two the activists, mm-hmm. and they uh, served time in the Shah's prison for their political activism, and um, and they wanted to make sure that the Jewish community uh, would join the revolutionary movement. And in 1978, in March 1978, so full nine months before the the Shah. Uh, left Iran, uh, they ran for in the elections for the leadership of the community and won. So the revolution started in the Jewish community mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, even before it started. Um, mm. And it was a very interesting uh, group of people. Their vision for Iran was creating this democratic uh, society, uh, republic that would accept, that would broaden the borders of Mm-hmm. Uh, of nationalism and include 
every member of the society. It would fight against uh, imperialism and colonialism and uh, political Zionism. And um, it would create this Iranian utopia that was in among the... I mean, this was the idea of the revolution, Right, right. When they where, that's where where it began. Right, and and so they took the revolutionary ideals and and showed the Jewish community why they should be part of this movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Jewish community, it worked because they won. But uh, later, when the revolution took different directions, um, this group. Um, I mean, eventually they would become the voice of the community even after the revolution, but they faced many, many challenges uh, because of the outcomes of the revolution. I mean, and that's, of course, revolutions are always so unpredictable and they take different courses. Right. Um, I mean, we can talk endlessly about all of this. (laughs) Uh, And all of this is is really fascinating. And I think that the podcast has only captured a very small part of what's actually in the book. Uh, but I, I really do want to congratulate you, Lior, on the Thank book you. and uh, you know the you know the, the rethinking of modern Iranian history in all of its areas and dimensions, including the Jewish history of that of that history. Uh, you've done something very iconoclastic, and and that's I think something that uh, is really important. And I should also say the book is a very good read. So, Thank you. Uh, and I was, I was very, I'm one of the few people who read it as a dissertation. Right. <laughs> and as a, uh, as a monograph. And I can tell you, it's much improved from a dissertation. Uh, so you've done, you've done a great job. Thank, thank you for joining us, uh, Lior, uh, on the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Uh, our hope is to continue with these conversations between OU Iranian Studies faculty and visiting scholars who join us here at the University of Oklahoma's Farzana Center. So thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.